to Why Are We So Restless, a podcast brought to you by Holy Trinity Anglican Church and the Center for Public Christianity. I'm Josh Shatra, the Executive Director of the Center for Public Christianity and theologian in residence at Holy Trinity Anglican Church. I'm also one of your co-hosts for this podcast. In a series of six talks, John Yates, the Rector of Holy Trinity Anglican Church, is going to address why we seem to be unsettled, discontent, and so easily distracted. He's going to consider what's going on culturally and how it is forming us before inviting us to consider different ways to learn to attend to the world. At the conclusion of John's talk, I'll rejoin you along with my co-host and New City Fellow alumnus, Micah Vandergriff. Micah and I will be joined by a special guest to briefly reflect on what we have heard and discussed how it applies to daily life. So stay with us for the second half of the podcast. In this episode, John discusses what it looks like to inhabit time in the modern world and then redirects us to godly rest and how it enables us to experience the joy of living slowly. So why are we so restless? Talk number four, we're restless because we've lost track of time. We've lost track of time. So drop down in the middle of the book of Isaiah. There's this miracle story that I have always really struggled with. So I've never had a problem with Jesus calming the storm, healing the sick, or giving sight to the blind. But I have never been able to get my head around the occasion when God turned back time. So you may, you may remember this. So in Isaiah 38, we learn that King Hezekiah has become deathly ill. Too young to die, he begs the Lord to heal him. And in a moment of incredible grace, the Lord says, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he's promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So you can picture this, a sundial. God's saying, look, I'm going to turn back time. Isaiah then tells us, so the sun turned back on the dial the 10 steps by which it had declined. So now, I'll be the first to say that we don't, we don't know really what happened here. Did God actually cause time to reverse itself? Did he alter the course of the sun uh, and spin the entire solar system in reverse? I don't know, and, and I'm not sure the mechanics of the miracle really matter. What I do know is that this miracle, it teaches us two profound truths about the nature of time. First, it teaches us that God has power over time. This is fairly obvious. The whole point of the miracle is to affirm that God has power to grant life to whomever he wills and extend their life because he has authority over time. He controls it and he can manipulate it in ways that we simply cannot conceive. The second thing this incident teaches us is that time is a creature. What I mean by that is time is something that God created, just like planets and people. And that's how he's able to stand outside of it, to control it, and to manipulate it. 
Uh, this has got to be one of the hardest things for us to understand about God in, in, in my mind. So <clears throat> once again, we turn to the opening lines of Genesis for help in trying to understand this. And in verse one, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So before there's anything at all, there's God and the void that surrounds him. But then in verse three, we read, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So the first thing that God speaks into existence is light, which he separates from darkness in order to establish the sequence of days. Now, it might be a stretch to call this the creation of time, but that is, in effect, what the author of Genesis is describing. God establishes the rhythm of days, which then give order to the unfolding of creation. So time, time becomes the context in which the story of all things has, is told. But time itself is nonetheless a creature. It's a creation of the sovereign God who stands over and above it. So Moses explains this to us in, in the poetry of Psalm 90. He, he writes, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. God is everlasting. He was God before he formed the earth, and he will be God forever. He's chosen to order creation within the structures of time, but he himself is able to stand above it. It's not that he has a different perspective on it. He stands above and, and beyond it. So Peter is building on these ideas when he writes to the early church in, in his second letter. He says, but don't overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. That's a really amazing verse just to sit and sort of reflect on. God is not bound by time. He's not bound by time. We, however, we have a very different relationship to time. We live under it and within it. Our lives are governed by it. We cannot jump ahead or move backwards within it. We can't speed it up or slow it down. A day, a day may feel like a thousand years to us, but it's always just a day. Now, we find this really difficult to accept. So is it any wonder that time travel has become a regular feature in superhero movies? So humans have been measuring time for as long as we've walked the earth, but our relationship to time has evolved over the centuries. The basic rhythm of seasons and cycles of the moon that once, once governed all of humanity have in the industrialized West turned into seconds to be measured and managed and ultimately mastered. So in 1370, in 1370, King Charles V of France issued a decree that the clocks of Paris churches should begin to ring on the hour. 
and that all citizens should govern their days accordingly. Prior to his decree, the clocks in Paris had struck just seven times a day, and they were time to strike at the hours set for monastic worship. This is fascinating. So by the decree, the clocks would no longer mark time as a means of patterning our worship. Instead, they would be used to pattern our work. As one historian of technology has written about this decree, by making the churches ring bells at regular 60-minute intervals, Charles V was taking a decisive step toward breaking the dominance of the liturgical practices of the church. The church would bow to the materialistic practices of the bourgeois and turn its back on eternity. Now, I, this assessment may be a little bit overdramatic, but Charles's decree, it was a watershed moment in, in our Western understanding of and approach to time. And I'm going to resist the temptation uh, uh, to talk about history more fully. And instead, I want to fast forward to the present day so that we can take a moment to consider our own relationship with time as heirs of this tradition coming down from the last seven, 800 years. So when I was working on this talk, I couldn't remember the dates of King Hezekiah's reign. And so I, I tabbed over to Google and I asked. And in, in 0.66 of a second, Google spit out 760,000 results, the first of which told me the basic range of dates for his reign in Jerusalem. So I, I, what I want to do is I want to consider what this tiny little episode tells us about our relationship with time. The first thing it tells us is that we prize efficiency above all else. We prize efficiency above all else. So when, whenever we perform a search on Google, Google tells us how long it took to deliver the results. For most of human existence, we measured time in seasons in months, and in days. We now measure time in hundredths of a second. So the speed at which we process and deliver information, it's mind-blowing, and it continues to get faster and faster. So Gordon Moore was the former CEO of Intel, and he once observed years ago that innovation in computer circuitry means that the number of transistors on a microchip doubles every two years, while the cost of computers is halved at the same time. Now, even though this was merely an observation, it soon became known as Moore's Law. And it's been widely assumed in the computer industry for decades. So just as we expect our computers to get faster and cheaper every year, we expect our lives to be more and more efficient. And those expectations, they, they have an impact on our souls and on our psyche. So because we believe we can get more out of time than we truly can, we tend to overcommit. We say yes, because we think we can do it all. That imaginary undergrad from last night. We are chronically busy as a result. And busyness, as you know, it's just as much a state of mind as it is an observable phenomenon in our calendars. It isn't just about doing more. 
It's about expecting more of ourselves. So you know as well as I do that sometimes we feel busy, whether we're busy or not. The way in which we prize efficiency, it also affects how we think of ourselves. We judge our worth by how well we use our time. And this leads to always being on. So for those who work full time, It means that the boundaries between work and everything else are worn so thin that they are practically non-existent. So we carry computers in our pockets. We carry computers in our pockets, which means that we're, we're constantly tethered to work. Our expectations tend to exceed our abilities, and we constantly come up short, and that leads to chronic disappointment. It also leads to chronic distraction. So we've come to believe in the myth of multitasking. Multitasking promises that we can do multiple things at once, thus using our time more efficiently. But multitasking is actually, it's just rapid task switching, which leads not to greater efficiency over time, but to loss of focus. So the first observation we can extrapolate from my Google search illustration is that we prize efficiency above all else. The second is that our lives are marked by a sense of urgency. So I want you to imagine if my Wi-Fi connection had been interrupted at the moment I asked about Hezekiah's reign. So I probably would have been patient for two or three seconds, but very soon I would have known that something was wrong. I might have closed the window and reopened it in order to search again. And when that failed, uh, I would have started looking for my study Bible where I know I could find the same information. Now, that, reaching for my study Bible, opening it up, that would have taken somewhere between 30 and 60 seconds. That's all. But one thing that I'm certain of is that I would have grown impatient during this sequence, irritated at all of the time I was wasting. So because we measure things in fractions of a second, and because we're used to the speed of computer-driven lives, our expectations have been shaped accordingly. So when we consider the difference between six hundredths of a second, Google search, and 30 seconds, the time it would have taken to get my study Bible, we don't think about how brief both of those are. What we think about is the fact that 30 seconds is 45 times longer than six hundredths of a second. That's what we think. We may not consciously be in a hurry all the time, but our expectations place demands on our time. (laughs) There's there's something appropriate about that. Uh, Our expectations place demands on our time that lead us down a path always feeling So 15 years ago when I was serving as an assistant at a large church in suburban Philadelphia, I made a very foolish decision. I decided to give up hurrying for Lent. I thought it would be good to slow down and establish a more humane pace, but I had not accounted for just how hardwired I was to be in a My good intentions, they came crashing down, no surprise, on the morning of Ash Wednesday. So roughly three hours into the season of Lent. So that day we had three services, 
and I was out running errands, trying to get back in time for the lunchtime service. I, I was wearing my clerical collar with a smear of ash still staining my forehead from the morning service, and I accelerated through a traffic light that was yellow going on red. That's probably being generous. And my rapid transit through the intersection, it was accompanied by the sound of honking horns and the sight of shaking fists, all while I was wearing my clerical collar. <laughs> this is why I don't have a fish on my car. <laughs> so suffice it to say, giving up hurrying was a lot harder than I imagined. It is so much easier to give up chocolate or alcohol because we know exactly when we are consuming either one, right? But to give up hurrying is to attempt to distance ourselves from our own being, which has been formed and shaped to be in a rush all the time. Novelist and essayist Marilyn Robinson, she describes the strangeness of our pointless hurrying in uh, her collection of essays, The Givenness of Things. And she writes this. She says, The spirit of the times is one of joyless urgency. Many of us preparing ourselves and our children to be means of inscrutable ends that are utterly not our own. In other words, we are chronically hurried, but we can't explain why. All right, so the third thing we can observe from my Google search is that we're driven by a desperate need to manage our time, to manage our time. In a world that prizes efficiency and is marked by a sense of urgency, it's only natural that we order our lives in such a way that seeks to maximize our use of time. So we employ all kinds of time-saving techniques and purchase numerous devices in order to accomplish this. We have digital calendars with automatic alerts, our phones can tell us precisely how much time we spend on different apps throughout the day, monitoring our productivity and our distractibility. We read books about time management and we make annual resolutions. You're probably familiar with Paul's admonition in Ephesians 5 when he writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time. Or as the King James says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Now, most of us automatically assume that this is a reference to good time management, right? Make the best use of the time, redeem the time. We've got limited time, we better make use of it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that sentiment, but this is not what the passage is about. The passage is about obedience, and it's about godliness. We make good use of our time, not by being efficient, but by being obedient. That's what Paul's talking about. We only assume this is about time management because that's the lens through which we've been formed to think about time. Of course, managing our time well is important. The book of Proverbs is filled with pith pithy sayings denouncing laziness, distraction, and sluggardliness, which is a great word that we really ought to revive. But in our day and age, in our day and age, I'm convinced that an obsession with time management is more often a sign of idolatry than it is a sign of godliness. So let's think about this in the context of my first talk. In order to be able to manage something, one has to be able to control it in some way. 
We do not and cannot control time. Only God can do that. In our attempts to manage it, therefore, we can easily slip into playing God, uh, where we try to wrest control from our creator and ignore our creaturely contingency and finitude as a result. The idol of time management is just another expression of our desire to control. And the problem with idols is that they always disappoint us. This seesawing back and forth between our attempts to control something we cannot control and the disappointment we experience when we fail, it produces a sense of anxiety or restlessness. And I'm convinced that the undercurrent of anxiety that many of us swim against every day is directly related to our assumptions about time, the way we prize efficiency, the way our lives are marked by a sense of urgency, and the ways in which we're driven to manage the unmanageable. I think Pascal speaks to this when he writes, the whole of life goes on like this. We seek repose by battling against difficulties. And once they are overcome, repose becomes unbearable because of the boredom it engenders. What I think he's saying in part there is that we run hard and fast so that we can have time to play and to rest. But when it comes time to rest, we twitch with anxiety and with boredom. We find we can't stop. So far, um, we've been considering the ways in which our implicit attitudes toward time make us restless. That's ultimately what we're talking about. We're restless because we've lost track of time. So I want to shift our focus to be a little bit more constructive. In Psalm 90:12, that same psalm I quoted earlier, Moses asks God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. An effort to do this and an effort to help us learn to inhabit time rather than simply managing it, I want to invite you to consider three things. And the first is the art of being present. The art of being present. So one of the, one of the problems of living with a perpetual sense of urgency is that we're always thinking about and looking to the next thing right? So the next deadline, the next conversation, the next assignment. With the future always sort of bearing down on us, we really struggle to live in the present. Pascal diagnosed this uh, even in his day, and he writes this, we never keep ourselves to the present moment. We look forward to the future as too slow in coming, as if to hasten its arrival, or we remember the past to hold it up as if it had happened too quickly. We are so undiscerning that we stray into times which are not our own and do not think of the only one that is truly ours. And so vain that we dream about those which no longer exist and allow the present to escape without thinking about it. Everyone should study their thoughts. They will find them all centered on the past or the future. We almost never think of the present. And if we do, it is simply to shed some light on the future. The present is never our end. Past and present are our means. Only the future is our end. And so we never actually live. But we hope to. And in constantly striving for happiness, it's inevitable that we will never achieve it. And he was so smart in his darkness, wasn't he? <laughs> so gloomily thoughtful. 
If we're ever going to learn to keep track of time, we must learn to attend to the present moment. It means putting away our phones. It means engaging all five senses as they respond to the world around you. It means making sustained eye contact during conversations, not allowing your vision to flit over shoulders or around corners. One way to approach the art of being present is by taking those four practices we discussed in the last talk and applying them to wherever you are and whatever you're doing. God is sovereign in this moment. How can I behold him? God is active in this moment. How can I receive his grace with open hands? God can be honored in this moment. How how will I abide with him? Finally, this moment will be one day redeemed along with all of time. How can I live in hope in this moment? There are plenty of really great resources out there that can help us in the art of paying attention and being present. And I just take these few thoughts as just the barest of introductions and as an invitation to consider what it means to to practice the art of being present. The second thing I want you to consider is the joy of living slowly. The joy of living slowly. So Dallas Willard was a well-known philosopher who also wrote extensively on Christian formation. And on one occasion, a pastor from a large church in Chicago called to ask for his advice. After, after talking for some length about stress and busyness and the pace of his life, the pastor asked him, what, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy? What, what do I need to do? And Willard paused for a long time before he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So the pastor wrote that down. He said, okay, what next? <laughs> And after another long pause, Willard replied, there is nothing else. It's a message not just for busy pastors, but boy, do I need to listen to it. Uh, it's a message for all of us. So think, of the thing, think about the things that you care about the most. The things you care about the most, they all take time, right? A meaningful friendship, a happy marriage a good education, a child growing through adolescence. These things also take care. You can't rush a friendship or a marriage or an education. When you do, they break. These things, they unfold at their own pace. And when we attempt to rush them, the fruit never ripens. So I once... um, I once spent a month cycling from Wichita, Kansas to Virginia Beach, Virginia. It's kind of random, I know. Uh, I was with my brother and with two very good friends, and we rode about 70 miles a day. And you can't ride a bike on interstate highways, nor would you want to. And so we stuck to state roads and county byways as we wove our way through the heart of this country. Now, I have driven and flown across America on a number of occasions, but the only time I felt like I really saw it was when I biked halfway across it. Going slowly and watching closely, I got to experience the character of places and people. I learned what Appalachia smelled like. It was a horribly inefficient way to travel, but it was by far the most meaningful. 
Ephraim Radner is an Anglican minister and academic, and in his book on time and mortality called A Time to Keep, he writes the following about patience and how it relates to our creatureliness. He says this, he says, it's no accident that one of the key words in the Christian vocabulary of creaturely life is patience. The word passion, as in the passion of Jesus, is related to patience. So patience has to do with suffering and ultimately sacrifice. But patience is also simply about time, living it, letting it be, letting ourselves be shaped by it and engaging it. To learn as a creature is to be patient. One reason that adults cannot stick with things, marriages, their children, their jobs, is because we have failed to learn the patience that comes with recognizing ourselves as given in an order, in time, in their places, such that we understand that our endings enclose and display the range of our wanderings. It's a great quote. The last thing I want to invite you to consider is the gift of godly rest. The gift of godly rest. So when God finished the work of creation, what did he do? He stopped to rest. He stepped back in order to simply enjoy all that he'd made. When he gave the law to Moses, he built a rhythm of rest into the life of his people. Six days they would work, and on the seventh they would rest and they would worship. So just before Moses climbed down from Mount Sinai to deliver, the God, to deliver the law to God's people, God said to him on the way down, he said, you're to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. So God's final instruction to Moses before he leaves the mountain is about the Sabbath. And notice what God emphasizes. The Sabbath is a reminder that it is God who sanctifies us, who justifies us, not we ourselves. In other words, this weekly day of rest, it's not about saving up energy for a new week of work so that we can prove ourselves, nor is it about recovering from the exhaustion of a prior week's work. It's about stopping to remember who makes us holy by doing nothing. By not working, we are reminded that it's God who does the most important work of all in our lives. It's he who makes us holy. In this context, worship on the Sabbath becomes a celebration of our absolute dependence on God. So it's a powerful reminder that we're creatures who depend on God, not just for life and breath, but for our sanctification as well. In Ezekiel 20, God is speak, speaks to the elders of Israel who are in exile. And he's recounting the story of the people's rebellion in the, in the wilderness. And twice, God mentions their rejection of the Sabbath. And twice he reminds them why Sabbath rest is so important. So in chapter 20, verse 12, he, he, God echoes the words he said to Moses saying, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They refused the sanctifying grace and rest of God. A few verses later, God returns to the people's rejection of the Sabbath. And he says this, 
I said to their children in the wilderness, keep my Sabbaths holy that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So not only is Sabbath rest a reminder of who makes us holy, it's a reminder that God is God and we are not. So in place of the in, in place of, of rest, this kind of rest that I'm describing, what the world offers us is entertainment. So when there's no God to make you holy or to reassure you that you're not in charge of absolutely everything, the only way to relieve the pressure is to be distracted. And so we binge watch a show or we play mindless video games, but those are just means of coping. True rest, godly rest, the intentional cessation of activity for the purpose of worship and abiding in the presence of God, this actually has the power to set us right with the world. It reminds us that we aren't responsible for everything, that we don't have to justify ourselves, that we are creatures with limits, and that time isn't something to be managed, but it's something that we inhabit. Please make note of the fact that unplugging vegging out, and simply being entertained are not the same thing as resting. Those things aren't wrong. They can be really enjoyable and relaxing. But they can never take the place of godly rest, which is always built around worship. We, may, we, we waste so much time as a culture through distraction and entertainment. And when we do, we're consuming time like junk food. But you can't consume something that you inhabit without eventually destroying your habitat. Instead of consuming, wasting, or managing time, we need to learn to inhabit it as creatures of the God who stands above it. Part of the way we do this is by practicing the art of being present, experiencing the joy of living slowly, and entering into the gift of godly rest. Well, we're back. This is Josh Atro, and I am, just to remind you guys, I'm the director for the Center for Public Christianity and the resident theologian at Holy Trinity Anglican Church. I'm here with my two friends, my co-host, Micah Vandergriff. Micah, Tell everybody what you do, just to remind them. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, uh, I'm working in a field called user experience. I'm new in the field, but uh, pretended to be a librarian for about ten years, and um, yeah, glad to be here uh, with our friend Jimmy Doster. Jimmy, introduce yourself. Thanks, Micah. My name is Jimmy Doster. I am about to come upon my thirty-first Easter Sunday of my life. <laughs> And I am married to the lovely Catherine Doster, who I believe is one of the guests on this show. We are the parents of two individuals. One, her name is Nia, and she's a joy. She went to a museum today and saw butterflies. Uh And then the other one has yet to be born, but we are (laughs) eagerly awaiting her arrival outside of the womb. Uh, I'll see. uh, You know, I work in the technology industry and... I help sell that technology. Great. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, glad, glad to have you. So the, the topic for our discussion today is uh, in, the, in the series of why are we so restless is that we've lost track of time. 
John kind of lays out for us that um, that we exist within the function of time, right? But we serve and worship a God who has cr- created that thing and who does not exist in that uh, in that that sphere. Um, because of that, we we end up prizing efficiency, feeling this urgency, need to manage time, all things that I feel every single day in my life. Uh, I'm sure we all do. Um, I'm going to ask you just uh, give me your general uh, first level impressions of of the talk. My first impressions of the talk was wow, how applicable to my life and perhaps uh, many other people's lives. Uh, you know, it hit home his, his illustrations that he he, he brought up uh, about uh, urgency, uh, feeling like there isn't enough time to accomplish what I need to accomplish in losing track of living in the present. And then, of course, when we think about time and looking back and looking forward and not living in the present, you know, when I look back, I spend time being sad about things that are gone. I, that that could be people in my life that are no longer here. And uh, the looking forward into the future, knowing they won't be. Uh, here on this earth with me in this lifetime. And then um, also things that resonate with me was, um, again, I don't know if he he talked on this specifically, but other people that I've been listening to in this particular topic have talked about how the regrets of the past uh, affect my ability to live in the moment and then worrying about the future affects my ability Mm -hmm. to live in the present. And the, these talk, these I'm mixing John's talk and also another talk by a gentleman called uh, Andrew Fellows, I believe his name was. He was a lecturer at Labrie Fellowship, which is a place that I spent some time during my life. Uh, his lecture on uh, the sacrament of the present moment, particularly the section on uh, the art of being present. Mm-hmm. So these were several of the things that came to mind and have come to mind as I, I've thought about John's talk. Mm-hmm. So Jimmy, um, I'm curious. So you're a, a graduate of the new city fellows pr- program also. Um, I'm curious. We, we haven't talked about your job very much, but I'm, I'm curious what, um, like as a sales person, what does what does time feel like for you in your day to day life? How does uh, um, even even you know th- separating f- faith and the, and the talk from it? What does what does it feel like to be in the, the industry that you're in? Hmm. <laughs> Certainly, I wrestle on a personal level with the context around being hurried uh, and not living in the present from a professional. Uh, level, I think I could, I could walk that logic a little bit with you in understanding the importance in a sales cycle of one qualifying a customer for what I want to sell to them uh, to make sure that my time invested with this particular prospect 
that I can actually solve a problem that they have. Hmm. And so maybe, maybe we can apply that sort of perspective on going about a sales motion uh, to something that's higher level than that, uh, which is, you know, are we spending enough time uh, in our life not to just be busy so that I'm working a lot, if that mm-hmm. makes sense, uh, but that I'm actually working towards something that will be fruitful. And in my case, in my business, I help out state and local governments and institutes of education or schools of education. Uh, I want to make sure that the time I spend with these customers or potential customers, that they that is valuable to them and that is valuable to me in the sense of I have something that I can provide to them. And so I don't want to hurry along and get to a sales pitch that is going to hit a solid door or speak to a solution that they don't have a problem uh, for, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it's um, you, you, you didn't say this explicitly, but there, there's a relationship being built there. And I think that that's, that's a theme that, um, that comes up in, 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 in the series is that the restlessness that we feel um, is often when we're disconnected from relationship and, and from community. Mm-hmm. Um, Josh, when, um, when we're thinking about time in a, in a theological sense, so the, uh, Jamie Smith, James, James K.A. Smith came here to, to Holy Trinity uh, about two years ago. I think this was the last physical event that I attended before we all went and locked ourselves into our homes, but came here to the, to Holy Trinity and, and gave a talk at the, the launch of the Center for Public Christianity. Yeah. So this was the first time, uh, I, I don't remember the, 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 um, the meat of the talk. It was great. I'm sure I applauded, was happy to be there, <laughs> but he said this, I, this, this word, this phrase that I had never heard before. And the idea that, that I, that I came away with is that we sort of lost a sense of when we are. And he, he introduced this, this idea called the seculum mm-hmm. that we're living in, in, in the secular age. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, can you uh, pick up on that a little yeah, bit? Yeah. And, yeah. And of course, uh, Jamie shares with me a love for Augustine, and so he's his talk was was connected with Augustine and this kind of this recognition that we're living in a time of, as the New Testament puts it, already not well, as New Testament scholars have put it, already not yet, which means um, we're not in the new creation. We're, the 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 new creation hasn't been consummated yet, and so we're living in this time where. Yes, the kingdom has broken in, and yet we're still dealing with suffering and pain and evil in the world. And so he turns to Augustine and he pulls this little phrase out of um, at, from from some of Augustine's work, where Augustine says we we should not live ahead of time. And what he means is um, living with the expectation of kind of of full consummation now and so to be a christian is to live in the kind of um as humans who embrace the the now and the now is a kind of fallenness and brokenness and yet still within that grace 
and so there's a certain, so this plays out. So that, that might, you know, that might seem really abstract. Like, okay, we just went Augustine and uh, New Testaments, you slipped in some New Testament theology all in like two minutes. What are you saying? Well, you see this played out, like, what are your expectations? So let's, like, what, are your expect, what are your expectations out of your job? You know, and if your expectation is, okay, we're, uh, my job's going to bring me complete fulfillment you're probably going to have a tough time at work, right? Um, if, you're, if your ex- expectation of your participation in civil life or politics is we're going to achieve some kind of utopia, you're probably going to get pretty cynical and pretty angry pretty quick. If your expectation of parenting is that um, is that you know your kids are just going to obey perfectly and be angels, like you're, that's not. And so, and yet, even in that, to see God redeeming the world and seeing grace through that, so it, it leaves us in a place where we're, because of our relation in time, to time and how we think about time. On one hand, we're not um, we're not naive. Or, um, but at the same time, we're not cynical either. There, there's this, there's this hopefulness, but I would say hopeful realism. Um, but we're, we're always living in, because we're always living in light of the new creation, the promise, the hope, as Augustine would put it. He, he says we're happy in hope, you know, because we know this world is being redeemed. I went looking for um, to, to, to try to dig up that that thought again, and, and found uh, James Smith's uh, Jamie Smith's uh, forthcoming book is yeah. H- How to Inhabit Time. I assume he'll expound on all this there. But um, there's this amazing phrase in the description of the book on the publisher's web uh, website that I, that kind of hits at things that we've all said here. They say talking talking about uh, James K. A. Smith's How to Inhabit Time that he he writes about how we're indebted to the past or as Christians, we should be indebted to the past, oriented toward the future, but faithful to the present. And I thought that that was just a, a, a I'm anxious to read the book, right? But, say, say that again, Micah. Yeah, say that it. we're indebted to the past, oriented toward the future, and faithful to the present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you could say that, and, so, and I don't, of course, I don't know where he's going there, but you could you could do that out of the, like, if you think about the key event the climactic event of all human history which is the death and resurrection of of jesus which puts us we're, in some sense we're 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 looking on that event and then we're looking deeper into the past to look at to understand history even before that and but then we're also how do we look at the present in light of the future that that's secured mm-hmm. and so there's this I would, you know, you can put that through the lens of the resurrection. And so we're hopeful people. That's in our DNA. We're hopeful people. We're persecuted. And yet uh, we rejoice. You know, even as we we mourn, we mourn as those who are blessed, as Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount. So it it makes us really odd ducks, doesn't it? I mean, it makes us strange, right? Because we're people who because we inhabit time this way, we're hopeful even in the midst of tragedy. And yet, and, and this gets at some of the comments Jimmy um, made earlier, but we're, we're also people who, be, because we're, we're people who 
who have opened ourselves up to the world and therefore also ex- we haven't we haven't kind of used an anesthetic to try to numb us from the world which mm. means we're going to experience deep pain mm. but that's not the opposite of flourishing yeah and and so and and, and even in that deep pain we're, we still have our eyes on what's coming yeah that reminds me something i touched on earlier or alluded to was uh being sad about things that have happened in the past, people that I've lost. And you've, you just touched on um, uh, a couple of things uh, that tie to some encouragement that I received when my grandfather passed right before COVID became really bad in the, in the U.S. in early 2020. And I remember because of encouragement that I received, uh, I was able to say at his at his funeral, obviously we we're going to miss my grandfather, among other things that I said. But uh, because of his faith in Jesus Christ, there is a day, as C.S. Lewis wrote, in some way much more eloquent than this, that all sad things will become untrue, and so we look forward to that in the future. If we do look forward. We look forward to that day when sad things like my grandfather, who places faith in Christ, will rise from the dead, and we will have new new life with Christ, and presumably together. And so, sure, it's difficult to piece together all of that, but in a moment of sadness, it is hopeful. People on the outside may view it as give me a word, something to be scoffed at. Mm -hmm. But it is hopeful. And one of the questions, the practical applications that John, uh, you know, this moment will be redeemed along with all time. So how can I live in hope right now? Mm -hmm. And so that is one application of that, I think, still being true to the purpose of his practical application that I thought of in the midst of this particular topic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's interesting to me that, um, so the, the, you know, the, the overall theme of, of, of these talks is why are we less restless? And then, uh, we, you know, we kind of have a, a, s- a series of, of, of topics there. As I've been go- going back through them and having these conversations with other people, I keep coming to this idea of, um, what what does a redemptive restlessness look like? And I think you, you both sort of just described it in a way that that we are restless here in this life. Like there's lots of negative reasons. We've lost track of time. We uh, are um, have lost a sense of our creatureliness. But also we're re- we're re- restless because we uh, we're living in the already not yet, right? And there's yeah. there's a, a hopeful restlessness that's pointing us towards something um, to- towards something great. So I just wanted to, to. I'm not sure where that idea goes. That there's there's yeah, a no, redemptiveness. Yeah, in there's too. a. You're, you're, I mean, there's a hopeful restlessness if we want to use that term. I, I mean, um, so, so so we might put it in different ways, but there's a kind of. Um, it's so so when C.S. Lewis says, for instance, that yeah, you know, what what do you do when you have this desire? that no kind of worldly thing can actually satisfy 
Well, to pointer his argument is, uh, well, it, the best explanation is that we were made for another world. And so there's a kind of um, other kind of worldliness is pu- pushing us beyond. And so if you actually look at, and, and, and John is using Pas- Place Pascal a lot in these talks, which you know makes my heart strangely warm because <laughs> Pascal's one of my favorites. But but when he's Pascal's responding to a guy, a, another Frenchman by the name of uh, uh, Michel du Montaigne, and Montaigne was actually saying, in light of kind of intense skepticism in France, and 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 forgive him for this because we need to remember the kind of violence going on in the 1600s and. Catholics and Protestants and everyone was killing themselves, killing each other. And, and he was saying, Hey, maybe we, we don't know. And maybe, so it was kind of this, we talked about contingency. It was this like hyper contingency, which, which is actually skepticism. Like we can't really know anything. So just kind of live and be live and let live. It was a kind of UBU in a kind of uh, 16th century kind of uh, French way, at, at least if you could afford that, which wasn't very many back then. Um, and, and so by the time Pascal comes along, there was this way to inhabit time, which was primarily built on diversions. In other words, the ancients had always said, I mean, in Western tradition, and had always said we were made to actually kind of rise above our creatureliness. Okay. So that's not contradicting anything John says in the talk. In some sense it's like we're we're humans, but we're we're sinful humans and we're made for more. We're made for more. And that I, I think that that's kind of the this picture we see of our of our fallen place, Genesis two and then Genesis three, we're fallen. And here here's the point. Montaigne said, now don't worry about that. Don't worry about trying to achieve virtue. Don't worry about that. Just, you know, tend to your garden. And Pascal comes in and he says, that's actually not what type of creatures we are. And so by trying to do that, we actually create all these diversions. And for him, diversions are, you know, it was, it was gambling. And um, at that time, it was gambling and hunting. And, of course, now we have... Uh, we we've kind of upped our game a little bit with diversions, but uh, <laughs> gaming and social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've upped our game a little bit in, in three, four hundred years. But but the point here is that is that Pascal's recognizing what type of creatures we are, and he's saying no. This kind of striving, this desire for transcendence, and not to be content just with this world as it is, is actually what kind of creatures we are. And if we try to to simply tend our gardens and just kind of live this life of nonchalance, nonchalant, we'll actually end up uh, kind of dehumanizing ourselves. Hmm. Um, and if it's kind of this hedonistic way, just kind of do what you want, make yourself happy. And, you know, we live now, of course, in this time where we're super busy, you know, everyone's super busy. That's even like a mark. Like if you meet somebody and you're, you know, I, I find especially with men, if you know, you meet somebody and and you know, men of a certain age, you know, <laughs> 30, 40, or 50 year olds, and you're like, everyone's like, we're so busy, we're so busy. Um, and Pascal would say, yeah, of course you're so busy. You've got to, you've got to divert yourself 
um, from reality. And, and, and so you're diverting yourself and you can't just sit in your room quietly. You can't attend to the world and really have joy. So um, I think this kind of, even though we're creatures, I think that's right, as, as John reminds us in his talks, we also need to, as creatures, we were made to know God <laughs> and to live for him. And I think so much in the modern world has said, no, 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 just, just, just be content to kind of do you, your own thing. And the problem with that is it's, we're not actually happy mm-hmm. doing that. And um, it doesn't actually work. Josh, you, you mentioned men of a certain age. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll add to that men of a certain uh, familial class. So, Jimmy, we, we chatted with your wife, Catherine, earlier um, in, in the series. Uh, I'm wondering what, as, as, a, as a new dad, so Josh and I are a little, little ahead of you, but as a new dad, what does being present look like in your family? And like playing off the like, we're all busy. We're you know we're you know out there working. And what is how how have you adapted or thought about that as you've um, taken on this new role? I can describe how not being present looks. <laughs> you know, in his talk, you know, he <laughs> talked about you know he had three points. I think about our relationship with time, just to level set. You know, we prize efficiency above all else. I certainly do that in my life as a part of a family, growing family. You know, our lives are marked by perpetual sense of urgency. Is his second point. And three, we are driven by a desperate need to manage our time. So anybody that's a parent on here or has been a part of a family, pause intended there. Uh, we we know what that means uh, when it comes to uh, the, the um, getting stuff done in a family uh before the between the hours of the sun rising and sun setting of course some of us also know that the, your child wakes up sometimes before the sun uh because the birds for some reason know that the sun is coming and so they wake up a, little, a tad bit too early and that's certainly been the case um we don't always get things done um and so your question you know how, how does being present um you know play out in my life um, well, I, I think I can only postulate uh, on good days when, uh, you know, my wife and I are in good communication and, um, we are aware of our senses and surroundings and perhaps we've listened to a talk like what John just, uh, you know, described in, in this particular, uh, session, uh, we can be aware of, Hey, our baby girl, uh, is seeing the world a new or or new uh for the first time and we can experience that with her uh and see that in her face and though we can't really recall our own first interactions we can place ourselves inside of her imagination mm-hmm. and i think of just over the last several days and today it's even repeated when she goes and she walks in our our front yard and we have, um, uh, you know, these flowers on the, on bushes that are blooming right now because it's spring. Um, and she gets really close. She notices a smell that she hasn't smelled before. So she takes that moment to, to waft that, that in, um, stop and smell the flowers. That's right. Uh, (laughs) but, 
you know, something that I need forgiveness for uh, is uh, the fact that I rush through my days and I can't wait many days to when my child is finally in bed, asleep, bathed, you know, given her bottle, hopefully read to trying to brush her six teeth, maybe more now. <laughs> Who knows? She's been crying recently. Some more <laughs> popping through. And so does that make me uh, feel bad? Sure. Yeah. In the context of this, but you know, um, it's, it certainly is. It's a real thing uh, in, in my, in my life. So um, I'm grateful for, for a topic like this that hopefully pushes back against that. I know I'm going to fail. Um, but um, the more reminders I have of that and the more opportunities I'll have to experience um, in a, uh, the gift that God has given us uh, here on earth uh, to, to live this life, try to live in the present and enjoy uh, uh, living slowly, mm-hmm. which is, is one, of his, one of his points as well. Yeah, and I, I would just say, you know, one of the, I think one of the one of the challenges for us is both to recognize the goodness of efficiency and the dangers of, of efficiency. So I think if you're skeptical listening to this, you could be like, "Well, yeah, but like, I got to get things done. <laughs> like, like I can't be like, well, we're gonna." We're gonna have a slow breakfast this morning, guys, and everyone eggs and bacon every morning, and then I'll get into the office at ten, and my boss is gonna look at me and say, "Ah, yeah, well, guess what? You're not gonna be here much longer." So we live in a world where, you know, yes, it's by the minute, and we're not gonna change that, and we we're not gonna go in in most workplaces and just say, "Hey, efficiency, let's change that. Efficiency's bad." Like no, I think so. So what I'm what I mean is, we can marvel at the efficiency of our Google searches and say, "Hey, that's a good thing. Like we get it quick." I, but what what we have to do, and I think this is for all Christians at all times, is we got to look at the times we're in, the season we're in, and say, "Okay, what are the dangers? Even about certain good things that are developed, efficiency in and of itself is not bad. The problem is when we when we idolize." efficiency it the problem is when efficiency becomes the ultimate telos that or or, um, telos just end goal the the ultimate thing we're after or efficiency becomes the kind of acid that eats through everything and so there's times for efficiency there's times to uh that inefficiency is glorious and i think we're we're kind of programmed uh, pun intended. We're program- we're kind of programmed in our society today that efficiency becomes the acid that eats through everything, and so we've got to figure out as a community. And I think it's only going to work through communities, starting our families, our churches, uh, our neighborhoods. How to how how to say how do we create spaces where we can just you know we can attend to the world and open ourselves up to creation, open ourselves up to what God's doing on his time schedule, not ours, and be open to that so that we're not always controlling and manipulating and seeing ourselves in that role. And that's, I just want to say, it's easy for me to wax on about this. It's really hard to do this because 
we recognize the good of efficiency. So I just think we need thick communities. We got to get in person. Uh, we have to keep preaching this to ourselves, and we have to create certain practices. Yes, and and one of the the practices um, that John sort of ends with is the, the idea of a Sabbath. Yeah, right. Like t- taking that holy rest. Um, a question I, I wanted to, to pose to b- both of you is, and one one that um, uh, so in, in our home we we've attempted to uh do the sabbath well <laughs> and and don't don't often and the in in my mind the struggle is between rest and leisure yeah um I, i'm wondering if uh either of you take the, take this one how do you understand that difference or how do you exercise that difference in your in your life how i understand the difference is you know you can do you can do leisure you can do lots of fun things or entertaining things, but not actually having a deep rest where a deep rest is a kind of posture of, of the heart. So it, it's possible to not be working, but to still be working. <laughs> There's a, you know, it, and, and so a kind of the deep rest is when we're, we're, we're going to God, even in, even in moments of, of you know eating of of the normal things that we're doing yeah, and moments we're, of activity of moments of activity yeah. but we're we're recognizing these things as gifts mm. now i do think combined with this there there needs to be times where you're not physically working of course right but i i because even as you're working you can recognize that that's a gift but i think there's this deeper kind of soul rest that should combine a kind of physical body rest that is the sabbath mm-hmm. i mean that is kind of the the new covenant practice of sabbath so there's an actual okay we're gonna we're gonna rest during this time physically but we're also it is is my soul resting is my heart resting in the lord and and then the uh, there's various practices to help both in in family and in um as an individual throughout the history of the church that to retrieve, to do this um, from things like the perv examine uh, and, and, and various other practices that are part of the fellow, the new city fellows program. Um, but I think obviously part of Sunday worship uh, in the new covenant is, is part of this too, as a community, this resting in the Lord as a community. Can I, I'll tell one quick story and then I want to hear um, yours. So there was this moment. Um, it's like a, a, a point in my life, very recent life, where I felt most rested. Um, and it was a, a shocking and surprising moment. So um, it was a Sunday afternoon at our our house out there, out there in Nightdale. Um, I was reading, um, there's a, a poet named Christian Wyman, uh, a book called He Held Radical Light that a, a kind of a group of us were, were reading together. So it's not a book of poetry. It's a book about, um, uh, yeah, a, b- a book about ideas about, about poetry, sort of. Uh, but so it's a beautifully written book. So I was sitting in a hammock um, reading and, and my youngest son uh, was, you know, running around the yard and screaming and throwing things. And, um, and the frustration started to build. And um, I, this may be the best parenting choice I ever made. 
is I didn't do the thing that I wanted to do, which was say, ah, stop, I'm trying to read, you know. Um, I said, ah, Augie, can you d just come in the hammock with me? And he luckily did. And I started reading aloud because, you know, it's, it's, it's great prose. He, he, he writes, uh, writes to be heard, you know. So it was super, you know, big ideas, um, the, you know, depths of knowledge about poetry and questions about faith. And I was reading for pages and pages and realized that Augie was listening. Uh, and, you know, I, I had kind of uh, gotten immersed in it. And I kind of lifted up the book and looked at him, you know, in the, in the other side of the hammock there. And he said, and he was still awake and, and looked at me and said, I'm really enjoying this, Dad. <laughs> and it was like, you know, the, the, the three whole seconds that that experience happened, you know, the, the wind, I can still kind of see the whole um, scene, right? The wind was just gently blowing and my son was sitting there staring at me after re reading, you know, this, this book to him for, for a couple of minutes. So that was a moment really, you know, recently in life where I felt um, a sense of rest yeah. in, in a way that I can't recall for a long time. Mm. So uh, I asked the question of leisure and rest. Jimmy, you, you want to take that one up? Yes, my wife would be a wonderful phone a friend for this one. <laughs> <laughs> she has talked about the Sabbath and rest in our conversations together. She's initiated those more than more than I have. From you know what I can recall, uh, thinking about the Sabbath and leisure and rest. Uh, of course, uh, church is a wonderful way to remind us of who we are uh, in relation to God, and that was talked on, talked about in this this particular topic. Um, in in our family, in terms of our desire for Sunday or our Sabbath, we want to do something that is life giving, and I think it's a wonderful invitation. And important to go along with that to in doing something life-giving, which for us happens to be usually something outside, walking our dog at, I think it's uh, Blue Jay Point, you know, up in North North Raleigh, and, our, and of course, along with our child. Um, it's a wonderful invitation to um, uh, live in the present, to kind of tie in uh, this this topic. Uh, and, um, that, that of course provides leisure for us. Um, and then if we do the most important element that ties it all together, this lit liturgical practice of reminding ourselves, uh, that God is the one that sanctifies us. God's the one that gives us rest. God is the one that controls time. God is the one that exists beyond and above time, and we inhabit it. And so how can we best inhabit time and live in the present, not live in the shame of the past or the worries of the future, but rather to rest in knowing who God is, what he has done for us and how that relinquishes the shame of the past and creates mute the worries of the future. 
To learn more about the Center for Public Christianity and what we're doing to equip, connect, and mobilize Christians to seek the common good of our city, please visit us online.